This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. I used to be a school teacher. One of the, they never put it on the head teachers. I never was a head teacher. Never put it on the head teacher's job description. Everybody will moan about you. They don't put it on church leaders' job descriptions. Everybody will feel you could be doing a better job. You know, they moan. They moan at. They don't, they don't think Moses, you've been amazing. You've come back from the desert and you've helped by the grace of God to bring us out. Thank you, Moses. They go, Moses, you, you've wasted our time. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us up into the desert to die? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It's completely not true. They never, there was never this referendum. There was never this referendum that says, right, okay, Israelite slaves, we're going to give you the vote. Hands up those who want to leave. Hands up those who want to remain. There wasn't a little group saying, now, I've got this idea... um, they're saying, there wasn't a group that said, you know, the benefits of slavery are right on there. This is great. You know, we, the benefits of slavery, 350 million pounds a day, the benefits of slavery, we've got food. You know, and if you die, there are loads of graves. That are, you know, and everybody's saying, that is amazing. They're going to feed me. Okay, they're going to beat me for all of my life, but when I die, there's going to be a good grave. There wasn't like one single voice saying, hey Moses, hang on, we need to work this one through. It's completely untrue that they said, didn't we say to you in Egypt? No, they didn't. It's interesting that that the thinking of Egypt still infected them. You know, what is Egypt famous for? Their graves. Question, are there any graves in Egypt? It's full of graves. It's full of graves because Egypt is all about graves. Because if you're, an, if you're an Egyptian, if you're following Egyptian religion, actually what was most important was the way you were buried. It was about your grave. It wasn't about living life now in freedom. It was about, like, I'm going to be buried with all my stuff. Take it into the afterlife. So when they're saying there weren't there any graves in Egypt, what they're saying, they've still got, Israel, they've still got Egyptian thinking. But so we can be like that. We can be in our thinking. God can have taken you out, but in your thinking you feel like still a slave. God says you're free from this pattern of behaviour. And you think, no, I'm not. I'm really not. I, I don't, believe the, I don't believe, really believe the Bible. It's not true. I'm stuck. You know, I'm, I'm there. You're still in your head back in Egypt. You know, we can really easily forget what it was like before you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian this morning, I'm not assuming that you're all miserable. But if you dig subconsciously, you probably feel empty. You probably feel unfulfilled. You feel like your life isn't flourishing. You feel like I'm searching for something. I want something more. You know, and what we do is we convince ourselves we're better off in Egypt. You know, it's better off in Egypt when I could just got the, I could just hang out and if I met a nice girl and she's pretty, I'd say, do you want to come back? 
We don't have sex. It was great. No pressure, no guilt, no stress. You know, I wanted to spend on stuff. Yeah, great, I'll just do it. You know, if I, if I, if I, if I got grumpy with somebody, yeah, I can lose my temper. I'm un unaccountable to it. Yeah, that was so much better there. That was real freedom there. And this following Jesus is all restrictive and narrative. You know, re what? Really? I'd much prefer to be back there. There's a line in a U2 song. I've used U2 for a while, so I feel they need a, a reference. I don't even know what song it is, but I remember it says, Sweet the sin, bitter the taste in my mouth. That's what slavery is like. It feels like, you know, you don't feel like you're a slave. The enemy tells you, the slave master tells you, it's great. Do this and you'll feel amazing. You'll feel brilliant. Sweet the sin. And then, before you know it, a bitter taste of slavery in your mouth. And sin always works like that. If you struggle like with temptation, sin always comes saying, you know, I've got this really great thing that you're going to love. You're going to love it. It's going to give you a buzz. You're going to feel excited. You're going to feel satisfied. You're going to feel full. You're going to feel flourishing. This is a great thing. And, and you go, hmm, yes. And then, after, and then oh, what have I done? But what happens is sin always works like that and it never delivers as advertised. It never says, yeah, wasn't it great? No one's sinning and saying, I love it. I don't think they're honest to themselves. We were better off in Egypt. It's not true. It's completely not true. In fact, Moses is brilliant. He doesn't say, well, I'm just let's debate the, the, the pros and cons of slavery to, to a pharaoh. He just says this. He says, look, I'm, he says, I'm not, going to I'm not even going to debate this. What he says is brilliant. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians, the slave masters you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Let's read it again. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you. The Egyptians you see today are never going to see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Why did God have the Israelites turn from what seemed like a very good escape route to back on round and get them trapped between Pharaoh and the sea? Because he wanted them to realise you are in an impossible situation. It takes sometimes an impossible situation. It takes sometimes that you've done something so tragic and so bad or you're stuck in such a corner that, you, that your own decision making's got you to you then think, oh man, I need God. Often we're trotting off from, we didn't think, well, I don't feel I was really a slave and yeah, I think the people in God first seems like quite a nice friendly bunch and I quite like church and you know, and I, and off you go and you think, well, it's good and I'll, you know, I'll do what I need to be a Christian and I'm all fine. What we don't realise is that we are stuck in this impossible situation. We're stuck between slavery and the sea. We're stuck. We're stuck. In fact, at the top of there it says, what have we to do? No, nothing. That's a quote from Martin Luther, who was struggling for, uh, 500 years ago, struggling with how do we get free from sin? 
Try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder. And then he felt like it was only when he realised this is impossible situation that I cannot get out of, that he got out of it. Following Jesus is not some vague advice that's mildly helpful or some interesting ancient teachings because that's kind of what we're into because there's nothing on the TV. No, God's rescue is from an impossible existential. That means for your very existence. A life and death crisis that will destroy you. Only God can save us from sin's crushing slavery and eternal destruction to death. Now you might not believe that. But the reason why it's in this story is because God wants you to know that's, how, that's, how, that's where you are. That's where we are. Natural giftedness and good looks won't save you, so I'm busted there. Uh, striving to be somebody isn't going to save you, so some of you are busted. Keeping the religious rules, is any of those in this church? I wish some of you were more into keeping the rules. No, I don't. Keeping the religious rules isn't going to save you. Church attendance, I wish some of you came more often, but that isn't going to save you. Nothing you do is going to save you. As I said, Martin Luther says, what, have we nothing to do? No, nothing, he says, but accept Jesus, who is made by God to be our righteousness. There's nothing you can do. Panic, panic, the old slaves come in, death and fear. Should we go back? Crazy, we can't go through, what's the answer? Two little windows in the story as we find the answer. One's water. Water. What's water doing in this story? Let's read. Water. Raise your staff, God says to Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that Israelites can go through on dry ground. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. And then it says again, the waters were divided and the Israelites went through on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and left. Question. Where have you heard water, in this story, the Bible story, the big Bible story, you can quote from anywhere, quiz question, turn to the person next to you and say, where have you heard about water being divided and dry land coming? Turn to the person next to you. And then I'll ask for answers. If you don't know, it's fine. I'm here to tell you. Where have you heard? Water's divided and dry land coming. Oh, Will, you can't resist, can you? Go on, Will. Tell us the answer. Genesis 1. Absolutely. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through on the, the, the sea on dry ground. Oh, this is a little window into the big story. Genesis 1. And God separated the waters. This is creation. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. Ooh, we're onto something here. Let's, let's see if this works again. So we've water and dry ground. There's something about the Genesis story. Where, you know the answer now. Where have we heard of wind blowing over water? Genesis 1, it says, darkness, darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved over the waters. That word spirit is the same as breath, same as wind. There's the writer's not waiting. He's saying, look, there's a bigger thing going on here. Let's do one more just because I like them. 
Where have we seen this? The angel of the Lord was travelling in front of the army, withdrew behind them, so a pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of God and the armies of Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud separated the darkness on one side and the light on another. Where have we seen light separate from darkness? Genesis Genesis 1. You'd think there was a God who wrote this, who did that and did this. Why is this? It's because this is really important. This is a new creation story. This is a new creation story. This isn't just about coming out of some bad habits, trying your best, and coming into some better behavior. This is about coming out of an old life, an old way of thinking, an old creation, coming into a new creation, being made a new person. That's a load more powerful than your best efforts, right? We see it, don't we? We see this when, when we go going through waters, this bringing, uh, you know, it's a, it's a new start, it's a new way, it's a new way of doing things. So, so Joshua goes into the promised land after this story. Do you know anybody know what, what, what it, where, he, where he goes? Through the Jordan. Jesus starts his ministry, where does he go? Baptised into the Jordan. Something going on here. Hold that thought. But, the, but, but, but for the Egyptians, it's not new life and new creation. There's something else going on with water. Let's read this. The Egyptians, the Egyptians uh, said, the Lord is fighting for Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back into place. The Egyptians were fleeing and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army that had followed Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Now, it's not Genesis 1. Where have we seen God using water to judge the earth? Noah's Ark. Everybody died apart from those that were in the ark. The Bible tells us that's Jesus, just for a freebie. What's going on here? For, the, for those without God, water means death and judgment. So for some, life and new creation. For others, death and judgment. It's almost like anti-creation. It's where God separated the waters, the waters flow back over. That's what happens in Noah. And here, the waters flow back over. Where God said, let there be light, suddenly darkness. There's something powerful going on. What was happening is that, that in the water, Pharaoh's arrogant pride was going to be left there. He's trusting his own power, his own chariots was going to be left there. He's falsely assuming sovereignty that he could do what he wants when he wants was left there, dead in the water, judged in the water. So, so water is a symbol of life, of new creation. And also a symbol of death and judgment. So let's hold the water. What's Moses in this story? He's the other little window into the big story. The question is, two groups of people go into the waters, and we know that waters can cut both ways, as it were. Two groups of people go into the water. Why for Egypt did the waters bring death and judgment, but bring life and new creation for Israel? You think immediately, well, that's because Israel were the good guys. But that's not true. 
Because we saw last week, actually, Israel were the bad guys. They needed the blood of a lamb instead of their place, to die in their place. It wasn't like, well, I'm not going to, death can't touch you, Israel, because you've never sinned, because you've always loved me, and, you, and we'll find later on that they don't. It, it wasn't that. Why was it that Israel survived, God's people survived, and Egypt didn't, God's, God's enemies didn't? The answer, and I did get this from a book, was that they had a mediator. They had a mediator. A mediator is one who goes between two, who can represent both parties, who can represent both parties. It's in one sense, you know, that, 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 that they act... Somebody who's going to act for God and act for the people. Let's, let's see, am I making this up? It gets technical and then we, we finish it. So we saw in the beginning that the Israelites cried out to God in unbelief and fear. So that wasn't a good thing. Moses didn't cry out to God. He says, oh, God's going to do an amazing thing for you. But actually, if you look, you probably, you probably haven't got it in front of you, but if you look in... in, in straight afterwards, God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? The Israelites are crying out to God, moaning about him. Moses doesn't. But God says to Moses, why are you crying out? Doesn't it feel a little unfair? What's happening is, their sin, God is seeing it as Moses' sin. That's interesting. Their sins, God's seen as Moses' sin. Moses is full of faith, but God rebukes him for Israel's sin as if, as if Moses was Israel. God takes Israel's sin and puts it on Moses' shoulders as if he was the one responsible. And actually, we got a little hint in his name. Moses is so identified with Israel that even his name, drawn out of the water, says, what's true for me, Moses, is true for Israel. He, he's a representative that way. What about his, his representing God? There are times in this story it says, and Moses stretched out his hand, and then God divided the waters. When Moses is doing something, God's doing something. It's almost like Moses is also representing God. And his name suggests he's representing God. His Egyptian name of royal birth. So why is this important? Like Tim Culler, who's, who I nicked it from, Say this. It's okay to nick, by the way. If you're making stuff up for yourself, you're probably preaching rubbish. <laughs> Moses was the one man who was so identified with God's people that God rebuked him for their sin. Yet one so identified with God that he was a vehicle for God's saving power. He's a mediator. Who does this sound like? Who does this sound like? Who's done no sin, who's done nothing wrong, who's never a slave to sin, never done anything wrong, but yet God says, I'm going to count you responsible. Who's the one who's fully God in every way but comes amongst us to represent God with us, Emmanuel? It's Jesus, isn't it? Let's put water and Moses and mediator together and find out the great story and you're going to say, I love it. Jesus is the true and better Moses. It says in Acts 3.22. The true mediator. Jesus, fully God and fully man who took on human flesh. Actually, Jesus wasn't a slave to sin, but he died a slave's death. Only slaves died by crucifixion. Royal people, no. But he died a slave's death. 
But it's even more powerful than that. It's not just he identified by taking our sins and dying a death on our behalf. Actually, Jesus went into the water. Yeah, he goes in the water in the Jordan, but actually there's a bigger water that he gets dipped into. There's a bigger water that he gets plunged into. Mark 10, 38, Jesus says to his disciples, can you be baptised with the baptism I'm going to be baptised in? Can I, I'm going to be plunged into something that you can't go into. There's something that I'm going to do that you can't do. Jesus enters the waters of death on our behalf, dying in the darkness. There's darkness again. And then raised to life, drawn out of the waters as a new creation. He's dying the death that slavery demanded. He's dying the death that, that Red Sea demanded. He's he goes into, as it were, into the sea. He goes into the water. He dies on the cross, crushed and mocked and abused, and comes out to life. Now that life is massively available to you. Tim Chester writes this. Jesus, I, I'm finishing. Jesus is immersed in the water. He immerses himself in judgment. He is baptised on the cross into death and judgment. Water is symbolic of the judgment. But the cross is the crushing reality. At Calvary, the waters of death and judgment engulfed Jesus. Darkness covered the land. God pulled creation apart and Jesus sank into the tomb. But on the third day, Jesus rose again, the first of a new creation. God brings life out of death, salvation out of judgment, light out of darkness. Let's finish with this. Why does Jesus say to us, be baptised? Why does he say be baptised? It's great, we've had some baptisms. Why does Jesus say be baptised? I don't think he says be baptised because, you know, it's kind of handy. I love a little ritual. You know, with me, and, me, my Father and the Holy Spirit, we love a ritual you know, uh, let's get a pool, let's get people dipped under, you know, there's something that's, we, we kind of like that. Or, you know, it's quite good to get a lot of visitors on a Sunday morning if you have a baptism. You know, let's do baptisms and then the church will get lots of visitors. It's not that. Oh, it'd be quite good, wouldn't it be good to get people up front and tell their story? It's not that. Jesus is saying, baptise you. Because there's something about being baptised into Jesus that says his life is your life. He's the new reality. Romans 6 is this, nearly finishing. Romans 6, don't you know that all of us were baptised into Jesus, were baptised into his death. We're therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we saw that, that phrase actually in Exodus, we too may live a new life. Say that with me. We too may live a new life. You're not living this life caught between your old addictions and, and death and trapped. No, you've gone through death. You've gone through that and you're out free on the other side. I remember I became a Christian when I was young. I was in a Christian family uh, and uh, I kind of did okay for a while. But actually, eventually, the old habits of sexual intimacy, self-indulgence, drinking, credit card debt, the old patterns took me back. And by the time I'm 22, I'm back here. I'm back in Egypt saying, as almost as if I'd said, well, isn't it better to be back in Egypt? I'm back in Egypt. 
I'm doing the things that the world is telling me is going to make me free and happy. And I'm just dying inside. God, by his grace, comes and meets me, encounters me. And the guy that was talking to me at the time said this. He says, he says Howard, have you ever been baptised? And I thought, oh, it's just a silly ritual. He said, have you ever been baptised? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, let me there's no power in the water. You know, sometimes you go to a baptism and say it's been blessed by the bishop. Sorry, that doesn't make it more powerful. You know, but it's, it's not the water... He says, but what is it saying? He said this to me, Howard, you need to drown those Egyptians, those old Egyptians of pride. I could do what I want when I want. Of sexual intimacy. I'm desperate to be loved, so I'm going to try and find it in a way that's not God's way. Money, I, I want to be happy. I want, people, I want people feel I'm fun to be around, so I'm going to spend money. I, he says, you need to drown those old Egyptians. And he says, baptism does that. It's almost like, he says, it draws a line in the sand. The Red Sea is a line in the sand. draws a line in the sand and it says, this side of the line, because remember, we're coming out of Egypt here. This side of the line, you're a slave to sin. Even it keeps on coming back, keeps on dragging you back. But if you say, I know I've died with Christ, I've risen with Christ as a new person, a new creation, I'm not that person anymore, you're free. You're free. How do you get free, people? You can't live halfway. If you try and live halfway, if you try and say, I'm, I'm going to be free, but in the end I'm just going to be caught between this, I'm going to live this kind of life of struggle and slavery and whatever, and you, you know you've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, I'm dying. I'm dying to my old way of life, I'm dying to my old way of thinking, I'm going to die to that, and the water doesn't do it, it's a belief thing, you believe that Jesus has done it, that you come through that, and I'm coming through new. Now I'm not saying I've never ever had moments where I've, 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 I've had moments of, of lust. I've, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I've never had moments where I've been tempted to spend wrongly. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm not saying I've never had moments where I've tempted to do it my way than not God's way. But what has happened is I've never been enslaved again. I've never been enslaved again. I've never been mastered by those things again. I'm free. N- not because I did it, but because God did it. He says, stand firm. Just stand and watch as I do it. Look at the cross. Stand as I do it. Stand and, and look. And look at my body broken. Look at my flesh torn apart. My, my, as it were, like the waters divided. Look at, look at my body broken. Look at my body going down into the grave in the darkness. As it were, buried in the baptism of death. Let me take in death for you. Look, look at me coming out. New life. New power to live differently. Not in the liquid in here, but in the faith of the Jesus who's done it for me. You know how you fight against sin? Paul says this. Paul says this, how do you fight sin? How do you fight the old slave master, the old pattern, the whole destructive behaviour? Paul says, put on the armour of God. It tells you what that is, we have time to unpack it. So when the evil day comes, when the old slave master, when the old Egyptians are coming after you, you'll be able to stand. Stand firm and see what God has done. 
Come and let God fight for you. Come and let him set you free. It's not about grit your teeth, try harder. It's about saying, I believe this. I believe this. You know. No, I'm free. You know that I can preach this, not because it's a nice idea, but because when, I, when you get close to people, and I get guys who come to me and say, man, I struggle with this addiction. Girls will say, we struggle with that, or debts and credit cards and stuff. You know, you can see them free. It's not just a good idea, nice sermon. It's actually true. The power of the risen Jesus can set you free. You've got to leave in the water the old gods, the old pride, the old self-indulgence. Leave that in the water. You're never going to see it again. It's never going to enslave you again. So we're coming out into a new place of victory. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.